done for us and remember that you uh, came to earth and were born and lived among us. So this morning, as we read about Abraham and the promises that you made uh, to him and, and really to us through him, that you would uh, point out Christ through all of this to us. So bless our time uh, together this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing of the word. Now in May of 1961, uh, President John F. Kennedy addressed Congress, and he said this. He said, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Then eight years later, July of 1969, Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong took off on the Apollo 11 mission. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. Humans, for the first time, had ventured beyond their terrestrial home and set foot on something else. Now this promise of glory, the promise of adventure and of scientific exploration uh, really fueled these men. And for a time, it fueled our country. And as I walked in this morning, I saw photos of that moon landing out on the wall. So in some way, it's still driving us a little bit, I think. But for a brief moment, especially in 1969, these men were the embodiment of those promises. They were in the embodiment of the hope that we all had. So we come to our text this morning and we see promises. We see promises of a great nation, a great name. We see promises of blessings and of, and of offspring. And I think as humans, it's natural to ask, what's the outcome of these promises? Where's the result of all of these promises? So for eight years, our country waited, as President Kennedy had said, this is our goal. So we waited for eight years. But Abraham waited much, much longer, centuries even before all of these promises would be truly fulfilled. So today, let's look together at God's promises to Abraham. And more than that, I want us to see Jesus 
in these promises. I want us to see him in the promise to other nations, and I want us to worship him as we remember his incarnation, that he is the embodiment of all of these promises to Abram. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the promises to Abram, the promise to bless all the nations, and then I want us to consider what our response should be. Just as a note, at this point in our text, his name's Abram. His name hasn't been changed yet. So if I use Abram and Abraham interchangeably, I apologize. Um, it's, we're so used to calling him Abraham, but his name at this point is Abram. So first, let's look at the promises God makes uh, to him. But first, let's look at verse 1, where God first calls Abraham just to go. He says, leave. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Before God blesses Abram, he calls him to go. In other words, Abram, leave everything you know. Leave safety, leave security, leave your comfort behind. Make a long trek. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you where you're going. Uh, just trust me, and I'll show you where to go. I, I, I can't imagine that. I plan trips weeks, months in advance. Um, so imagine that you're praying, and you get this sense God says, go. Okay, so you pack up a suitcase, you get in your car, you start driving, you find yourself at the airport, and you just walk up to the desk and say, when's your next flight? And you buy a ticket, and you get on, and, and you go. That's uh, kind of what's happened here. God has just said, go. That's what God calls Abram to do. Go to the land that I will show you. So God calls Abram to go, and then he makes him some promises. In verse 2, God promises to make him a great nation. Go to the land that I will show you. Leave that financial security, and I will make you a great nation. I'm not telling you right now where that is, but go and there I will make that happen. So what does this mean? What does it mean that he'll make a great nation out of us? Well, I think it means at the very least that this nation will be known. Somehow, some way, God will make this nation known. Now, how many of you have heard of the country of Equatorial Guinea or Togo or the Federated States of Micronesia? They're not huge countries. I see many hands. That's very great geography. Um, these are tiny countries, and companies like Google, Microsoft, and Amazon they each have more cash on hand than the combined gross domestic product of all three of these countries. They're not what we would consider great countries. But God promises to make Abraham a great nation. So somehow, some way, God is going to make this country known. And if you'll notice, what's required? What does Abraham have to do for this to happen? Does God say, if you do this and this and this and this, I'll make you a great nation. No, nothing. There are no qualifiers here. God says, I will make you a great nation. This is unconditional. You know, and, and Abraham may be wondering uh, along these lines, what if I screw something up? What if I lose all my flocks and my uh, herds along the way? What if the family I want to bring doesn't want to go? And... Uh, what if I go to the wrong place? He may be thinking all of these questions. He may be asking all of this, but there's no answer because there's no answer needed. 
This promise is from the Lord, and that is sure enough. The Lord says he will make him a great nation. The Lord will do it. That's true, I think, for all of the promises to Abraham. What does Abraham have to do to make his name great? Nothing. What must Abram do to become a blessing to all the families of the world? Nothing. That is how God's promises work. When God has promised something, he will fulfill it. It's hard for us to understand, but that's the way his promises work. Now, I think we have all been the victim of a broken promise at some point. We all learned at an early age that promises don't always work that way. Perhaps our parents promised us something to take us somewhere, to buy us something, or to do something with us, and they let us down. Maybe a friend promises, I'll be your friend forever, and it doesn't work out, and it hurts. We learn that promises don't always work out the way that they're promised. So we begin to think that we have to do something to make them work out. We have to work to maintain that friendship, or we stay on our best behavior because then our parents won't have any reason not to buy us that treat. So we teach ourselves that somehow we have to control a promise. We make it about us and not about the one who promised us. That's not how it works here. There's nothing we can do to make God's promises more effective or less effective. There is nothing we can do. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to see it through. There's nothing that Abraham can do to make it happen, and there's nothing he can do to stop it from happening, despite his best efforts in a couple of chapters. He'll try, and he'll realize this lesson that he should have known right here when God makes this promise. Now, the next promise that God makes him is to make his name great, not just to make him a great nation, but but these two promises, they just absolutely fascinate me because they seem to be in direct opposition to chapter 11. If you remember what happens in Genesis 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. You all know the story. There's one language over the whole earth, so the people get together and say, let's build a city. And this is what they say. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and we will make a name for ourselves. So what's God doing here, I think, to Abraham? He's claiming glory for himself. He's saying to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. Others have tried to do this for themselves. They've tried to elevate themselves and their own accomplishments even up to the heavens. But you, Abraham, I will do this for you. I will make you a great nation, and I will make your name great. And here we are thousands and thousands of years later talking about Abraham talking about Israel, a country that that came from him. So truly the Lord has done what he said he will do and what a blessing it is for us to be able to study him and to read of God's faithfulness to Abram, God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. So even in that final blessing in verse two, Abram has become a blessing to us because of what the Lord has done. Now verse three moving on, contains, I think, a further promise, a promise of God's continued supervision and guidance. God promises to bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you. 
certainly Abraham will find those that bless him and he will find those that curse him. So God is promising uh, to repay there. This is a future promise. Uh, This hasn't exactly happened because we've just met Abraham in the text. But why would God need to say this to him if it wasn't going to happen? Abraham will certainly face those who persecute him and, and so will we. So what does Abraham do? Well, it's the same thing that we must do. We've got to act out on faith. Abram leaves his home, he leaves that comfort, and he follows God on a promise. God has promised us many things, but we must act on the faith of what he will promise to do for us. And all these promises God has, has made to Abraham, but I think the most significant one is, is the next one. It's the one that God will make Abraham a blessing to all the nations. Before we get into that, I want to take a moment and just dig into some some ancient Near East background, uh, some ancient Near East worldview or thought patterns, perhaps. I want to remember that in the ancient Near East, gods were thought to be regional, lowercase g, gods were thought to be regional. You would find out how powerful a god was by going to war with the people of that god, and whichever army won, clearly that god was more powerful, or that god must be superior in some way. And Abraham has this same cultural background, the same uh, understanding of of the people around him. So when God promises to make Abram a blessing to all nations in verse 3 here, God's claiming something that no person at that time would have thought a God would claim. Surely no God is powerful enough to have reign over the whole earth, over every nation and and, and over every family. It must have been absolutely crazy for Abram to hear this. What's more fascinating to me is that when God promises this, that he promises to be a blessing, it's not through war, it's not through marching an army across the globe, it's not through building a tower that reaches all the way to the heavens. And if this were today, if this were our time, it's not through a corporate merger. It's not through offering same-day shipping so you can get your products out even faster around the world. It's not through signing some peace treaty. It's not through any of the normal means that we would expect or that Abram would expect that this blessing happens. It's through the promise that God gives in verse 7. After God promises to make him a great nation, make his name great, and promises that he will be a blessing, he promises that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham leaves on this promise, on these promises. He leaves, he puts aside his own desires, and he goes and he follows God. He packs up some of his family, he packs up his possessions, they set out for Canaan. He goes and he follows. And so Abraham, like those astronauts, for a moment, Abraham is the embodiment of the hope of those promises. He's the one acting out on him. And so if you're reading carefully, you think, there are these promises. Abraham, this is the one. This is it. For a moment, you, you think that. So that, that step of faith that he takes then takes him to this place called Shechem. And there's a famous tree there. This place, Shechem, would later be where the covenant was reaffirmed to Joshua during the conquest. Later, after that, it's the capital of the northern kingdom after the kingdom of Israel splits. And even later, after that, this is close to the spot where Jesus would have a conversation with a Samaritan woman where he declares himself to be the Messiah. 
where he declares himself to be the offspring of Abraham. So we come to this and we see that Abram arrives in Shechem and we think, not quite finished. There's something not complete about this. And so we read on about this promise that gets made that the blessing to the world will come through an offspring. In English, we don't always catch the subtlety uh, of this. If I were to look out uh, at you and speak to you, you don't know whether I am speaking to you or to you. Because in English, it's singular or plural. But in Hebrew, uh, there are parts of the word that make it different. It's kind of like in the South where we have you, y'all, and all y'all. They all mean different things, by the way. But in Hebrew, they have that distinction. Um, And Paul, in Galatians, picks up on this. So if you'll actually turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, I want to turn and read there for a moment. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. If you have an ESV, that's on page 973. Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now skipping down to verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul picks up on this subtle little bit of language, and it's almost like he goes, yeah, you're right, something's missing. You might have thought it was Abraham who was the embodiment of this hope, but it's not. The real fulfillment of this, the real fulfillment of God's promises comes through Christ, not Abraham. It might have looked like Abraham was going to be the incarnation of all of that hope, of all of those promises, but that wasn't the case. It's through Christ's incarnation. It's in his birth, in his life, and in his work on earth, and in his death, and in his resurrection that we get the fulfillment of all of these promises. Now, do they apply to us? They certainly apply to us, these promises. Look again at what Paul writes. Paul writes that God preached the gospel. It means that he was telling Abraham that a Savior is coming. That Savior is going to come from Abraham and that Jesus is going to be the way in which Abraham is a blessing. Christ is that singular offspring from Abram. God, in part here, tells Abram the Christmas story thousands of years before it happens. And we are those blessed by this promise. Now, it's a difficult thing, I think, to come to understand the reality of a promise. Like, what's the reality of a promise? So if you promise to buy someone lunch, going out to lunch and eating with that person, that's the fulfillment, that's the reality of that promise. So the Psalms tell us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste of his promise. Christ is that physical reality 
he's that sustenance for our souls. When we yearn for something, when we long for something, when we realize that maybe what we're reading about Abraham, that it's not complete, it's not done, we can turn to the promise that God gave to Abraham. We can turn to Christ. That's how Christ is the reality of this promise. So what do we do with this? When we come face to face with the incarnate Jesus, with the reality of this promise, you know, when we understand that Christmas, the celebration of his birth, reminds us that, that Christ is that reality in our lives, how do we respond to it? There are a couple of ways. I think we need to understand what God is calling us out of, what God is calling us to. When we look at Abram, we see that he was called out of something. He was called away from family, away from his home, away from comfort, but still he went. He was called out of so many things, and he left and followed God based on a series of promises. Now, we have the fulfillment of those promises. We know Christ. We have seen him, and if that's the case, then we must ask what God might be calling us out of. You know, we're in the midst of, of crunch time for Christmas. If you haven't finished shopping yet, then ordering online will certainly be risky. You might not get here in time. So you have to brave going to the store in the midst of this season, or heaven forbid, the mall even. So please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with going shopping. There's nothing wrong with buying gifts. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But when the need for stuff, the need for consumerism uh, overtakes our need for our Savior, that may be the thing that God's calling you out of. Maybe he's calling you not to focus and worry so much about having the absolute perfect holiday ready, but through all of your preparations and all of your purchasing, meditate more on him through all of that. Maybe Christ is calling you out of a, a streamlined career path because it would pull you away from your family. Maybe that next promotion will require you to work longer hours. Sure, you'll make more money, but you'll never see your family 